You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. My desire today is for us to see the foundations and origins of some of the most important doctrines that we hold to, finding their um, their original place here in Genesis chapter 3. And so continuing to look at Genesis 3 this morning, but looking at it more so from a doctrinal standpoint versus the narrative standpoint. You will remember last week, though, in Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so we highlighted the fact last week that while God had spent all of chapter 2 demonstrating his goodness, demonstrating his provision, demonstrating his wisdom to Adam and Eve, kind of laying out this foundation, this groundwork for why he's placed them in the garden and how he's going to take care of them in the garden and how he's shown goodness and his provision for every need that they have and then given them tasks to protect the garden that the first threat to that safety is introduced here in Genesis chapter 3 and the threat comes in the form of Satan questioning ultimately God's goodness questioning the authority of God's word and his justice, his sovereignty, when he questions whether God is good in how he's laid out restrictions about what they can and can't eat. We said ultimately that God had given them every tree that was desirable to the eyes, that was good for food, that he had limited them in one area where they could not eat of a certain tree, but that as Satan and Eve dialogue, what continues to be the focus is the negative versus the positive, right? That That instead of highlighting the fact that God had given every other tree, that the focus and attention is brought to the one tree that they're not to eat of. God's goodness is questioned. God's sovereignty is questioned in the sense that um, Satan puts doubt into Eve's mind as to whether God really has the authority and power to take her life if she does eat of it. And then God's holiness is put into question when Eve is, is essentially presented with the idea of being like God. To be, to be able to attain the status of God. Holiness really portraying the idea that God is completely separate and different from his creation. And, and Satan wanting to blur those lines and say you can be like God. Even though we discussed last week, they were already created in God's image. They were as much like God as they could be. And they forfeited that when they gave into this temptation, to this questioning that Satan brings into their minds. Ultimately, both Adam and Eve eat, and immediately their guilt and their shame is seen in the narrative account. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. We talked about God's goodness last week in the sense that Adam and Eve are, are even still alive here in the narrative, that they're still permitted to exist, and that God shows up and questions them, giving them the opportunity to confess and repent. Right. He doesn't come with his all knowing ability and hand out judgment right away. Instead, he engages dialogue with them, encouraging and prompting the idea of confession and repentance. But all he sees is the blame that comes from Adam to Eve, from Eve to Satan. The lack of responsibility of embracing their role in it and instead wanting to deflect it to others. And then we see God hand out punishment. And discipline to those involved, disciplining the serpent. And it's, it's intriguing to note that, that God communicates hope before he ever disciplines Adam and Eve. 
that in the midst of dialoguing with Satan, he communicates the fact that a redeemer is coming that will rescue the seed of Eve back to him. Before he ever deals with punishment, he communicates grace and hope. Because Adam and Eve are there, they're hearing this dialogue with Satan, and it had to resonate with them that this could be a, this could be a lot worse than it looks like it's going to end up being. And we said that Adam even demonstrates that. That when, when punishment is handed out, instead of him grumbling and complaining like we're going to see in chapter 4 that Cain does, where Cain says, this punishment's too great for me, instead Adam's response is to name his wife Eve the source of life. We said it's kind of an odd place for that to pop up in the narrative that all this bad news and then Adam decides to name his wife, but it's an expression of faith. It's an expression of trust that he really believes that God is going to rescue them and he's going to rescue them through his wife. And as we sang about this morning, that rescue process has already started. It's a drawn out process so that God continues to receive glory over this, this long timeline of history. But we've seen Christ come that first time, that first Christmas, and, and begin that process of rescuing. And, and he communicates that, that in, in some way and form, he has bound Satan and he is rescuing people back to him in a, in a way that the Old Testament is a dark picture of of rejection and rebellion and the amount of saved individuals in the Old Testament, it's very possible it was very small based on the darkness of idolatry. And yet in the New Testament, light really begins to shine forth as people are being rescued from Satan and his dominion and his kingdom. And Satan's having to watch that. Satan's having to witness his defeat day after day as more and more people, more and more tribes and tongues and nations turn to him. And our hope ultimately is when Jesus returns that second time to put an end to Satan and death forever. After the punishment's handed out here at the end of Genesis 3, we see that God is preemptive about allowing this to be a permanent condition. Rather than letting Adam and Eve eat of the tree of life and permanize what their situation was to, to make it a, 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 a long-term eternal thing where they're going to be in their sin, God removes them from the Garden of Eden removes their ability to partake of the tree of life so that he can rescue them long term. What we see in Genesis 3, though, beyond just this narrative, is some lasting results of Adam and Eve's sin. And the first that I want to draw your attention to this morning in your notes is original sin. The concept of original sin. Now, when we say original sin, yes, we're referencing Adam and Eve and the original sin. But when we talk about it in the context of us, we're talking about what that original sin does to us, how it affects us as the offspring of Adam and Eve. And, and we understand original sin in the context of the covenant of works. You remember, it's been about a year ago that we talked about covenant theology and we looked at the different covenants in Scripture and, and how they, they fit together into God's plan. But what we see here in Genesis chapter 2 is that a covenant is made with Adam, a covenant is made. There are obligations and restrictions placed upon him with the promise of blessing. In, in chapter 2, verse 5, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The implication there is that if you do not eat of it, you will not die. This covenant was made between Adam and God in which Adam would have everlasting life dependent upon the condition of his obedience to God's command. 
to abstain from eating of this tree. And so a year ago, we described the fact that Adam is created in, in what we would call a state of integrity. There's, there's moral goodness here, but he's not glorified, right? Like, like he has the ability to sin. When we talk about glorification, when we talk about Jesus coming back one day and us getting new bodies, the idea there in Scripture is that we will not be able to sin anymore. That there will not be a temptation. There will not be a wrestling. There will not be conflict as to which choice to make. That we will be created in a state, recreated, transformed into a state where we cannot sin. Adam, though, is created here in a position where he can He has the ability to obey God and attain righteousness or disobey and bring condemnation. And scripture teaches us that he functions as the head or the president for all mankind. His choice affects everyone. We saw last week that Satan falsely reveals that he can promise a certain type of knowledge, a knowledge of good and evil. Now, now God recognizes here at the end of chapter 3 that they have become like God in the sense that they knew no good and evil, but they know it from an experiential standpoint now. And I want you to understand that, that it was not necessary for them to eat of this tree to understand that evil was bad. Think of it in the terms of a doctor, a cancer doctor, has, has intimate, intense knowledge about that disease without ever having it. Right. He's studied it. He's seen it. He's seen the effects of it. He has a he has a deep, intimate knowledge of how cancer works. A cancer patient has knowledge of cancer as well. They have an experiential knowledge because they have the cancer and they endure the cancer and potentially pass because of the cancer. But it's not necessary for the doctor to have cancer to understand cancer. In the same way, it was not necessary for Adam and Eve to experience evil, to experience sin, to have that knowledge. They could recognize the difference between good and evil. They could recognize that God had withheld this from them. But Satan confuses the process, communicates that God's not good, he's not in control, he's not holy. And yet God comes in and shows his holiness. By telling Adam and Eve that he cannot tolerate their sin. He shows his justice by punishing sin. He shows his love by communicating a way out of that sin. What we see, though, from original sin is that original sin leads to total depravity. So what we have here before the fall is that Adam and Eve could sin or not sin. But what we find from Scripture is that after the fall, we're unable not to sin. We are born into a condition where we sin because of the nature that we're now equipped with. Now, let me give you some definitions to these terms that we've already used. Original sin. Original sin can be understood as the consequences of guilt and corruption. The consequences of guilt and corruption that are inherited by nature in all mankind. It's the consequences of guilt and corruption that are inherited by nature in all mankind. And Scripture teaches this, and the the ways that we understand these New Testament passages and Old Testament passages is because of our understanding of Genesis 3. In Romans chapter 5, important passage to us understanding how salvation works. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
for indeed for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come all right so the idea here in Romans 5 that that Paul is drawing on is that something is wrong with mankind because death exists across the board and death existed prior to God giving his law in the Old Testament, right? So before Moses, so Adam to Moses, there's death, and death is reigning. And, and, and some of us have experienced the tragedy of death reigning very early in the idea of infancy and, and, and the death of, of children. And that's a tragedy, a tragedy that some have had to go through and some have had to bear that burden And the consequence there, the understanding there, is that something was wrong from the very beginning. That that death is reigning because sin has been passed to every individual that comes from Adam and Eve. There's a a guilt that has been applied to all mankind. There's corruption that's been applied to all mankind. In Psalm chapter 51, Verse 5, behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Moving on into Psalms 58, in verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the death adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Bible highlights the fact that from the very beginning, as men and women, we are distorted. We are broken. We are sinful. And we can see that very early on for those that are us that are raising children. We can see that sin nature exhibiting itself. Okay, so original sin has the idea that that guilt and corruption has been inherited by nature in all mankind, which leads to our second definition, total depravity. Total depravity carries the idea that sin affects the whole person and renders mankind unable to sustain goodness. Sin affects the whole person and renders mankind unable to sustain goodness. Okay, so... The idea of depravity, it doesn't mean that we're as evil as we could be, right? Like we've all met individuals that are not believers, that have not submitted to Jesus, that we could label from a, from a human standpoint as decent people, as good people, right? People that help others, people that, that demonstrate love. They're, they're not as evil as they could be. So when we talk about our depraved state, that we're born cursed, we're born with a sin nature, it doesn't mean that in every opportunity we're going to do as much sin as possible. It just means that sin has corrupted every aspect of who we are. Our thoughts, our intents, our actions, our behaviors, it's affected everything that we are, okay? And it, and it, and it renders us unable to be good people, right? So, so we can never, because of how we're born, we can never achieve enough goodness to earn God's favor, We're born from the very beginning broken. And this idea comes from Genesis 3, and it becomes more and more clear throughout God's word. So these effects on humanity that we're talking about, there's some immediate effects that happen here with Adam and Eve that have been passed to us. Shame, guilt, spiritual and physical death. 
The Bible says that we're born spiritually dead and that we're born on track to experience physical death. Adam and Eve experienced a loss of residency. They're kicked out of the garden. They also experienced a loss of communion with God. This idea is given to us in Ephesians chapter 2 for us in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the state that we're born into. Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So we're born separated from God. We're born ignorant. We're born in darkness. Not when we make a sinful choice do we fall into that state. The Bible says that in the womb, in iniquity we are conceived. From the womb we go estranged. We follow after the wrong course. Okay, so, so it's a cursed state. Adam and Eve's sin, everything that comes from them now is sinful. Adam's sin renders all mankind helpless and incapable of achieving the needed righteousness to enjoy God forever. So going back to that covenant of works. Be obedient, enjoy God. Be disobedient, be separated from God. Okay, Adam and Eve made that choice. They disobeyed. They're separated from God. And all of their offspring is separated from God and is unable to fix the problem. But it's not just us that are affected, right? Romans 8 tells us that all of creation has been affected. Romans 8, 19 through 22, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The Bible says that creation has been subjected to futility. That idea of futility means that it's unable to achieve its designed purpose. So creation has been subjected to futility, And it longs to be set free from corruption. Think about it. As we look around at God's created universe, a universe that he originally calls very good, we can see flaws and brokenness all around us. Right? We can see the diseases that we we encounter that are part of God's creation. We can see the, the natural elements that go awry in the form of hurricanes and earthquakes that cause destruction and chaos and tragedy and death. Parts of God's creation, the way that God's creation functions, the way that the, the weather patterns come together to create these tragic storms. This is brokenness. This is not how God created things to be. God did not create his universe to wreak havoc and tragedy upon our life. Romans 8 tells us that creation does not like this. That creation longs to be set free from this condition. Creation longs to be put back into order the way that it was created to be. It's been subjected to futility because of Adam and Eve's sin. These are lasting results of Adam and Eve's sin for us. In your notes there, man cannot be good. Man cannot be good. 
there's any doubt about the goodness of man and the ability to achieve goodness, Romans 3, 9 puts that to rest for us. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 8, 7 through 8. It's important for us to to grasp this, not just because we've heard it before, but to grasp it in such a way that we can communicate it to others because we can't communicate the gospel effectively until we can communicate original sin effectively. Because somebody has to get the fact that their good works are never going to be good enough. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And for the individual that would say, this does not include me. You haven't fully met me yet. I'm the exception to the rule. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Man cannot be good for two reasons in your notes. Number one, an impossible law. An impossible law. Going back to this idea of the covenant of works, Because of man's sin, God's law has now been expanded in its revelation. Because we're corrupt, God now has to communicate further things about what we can and can't do because our sin nature, our flesh, wants to live contrary to his law. James 2, 10 through 11, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It's a law that's impossible because to break any of it means that we're guilty of breaking it. And so it's a a perfection standard that's been placed before us. Not just a do better than others, not just a do better than your bad. It's a do perfect work. Or it doesn't count. An impossible law. Secondly, there are no examples to follow. No examples to follow, right? Like we'd love to be able to present examples and say, be like so-and-so. If you live your life like so-and-so, then you'll go to heaven. I'd love to be able to give you examples this morning of people that if you just modeled your life after them, you would be okay. That on the day of judgment, you would be okay. But what scripture tells us is there is no example that we can follow. Now that's not to say that individuals had not set themselves up to be that. In Matthew 5 verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we read that and we think, well, that's not, that's not hard. Like everybody's righteousness should exceed those guys because we, we see those guys in the terms of negative context. But at the time, these were your religious leaders. These were your pastors, your small group leaders, your deacons, your elders. These were the guys that people looked to as the spiritual authority. And Jesus comes in and wrecks that standard and says, you've got to be far better than the best that you see in your minds as far as righteousness goes to be okay in God's sight. Even further than that, we see in Luke 18, an individual who shows up thinking that he's, he's, he's done enough but wants to cover all his bases. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And this guy's obviously guilty of 1 John 1, 8. He's thinking that he has no sin. And so he's deceived himself. But he's probably honestly answering this question. He really thinks that in the terms of comparing himself to other people, that he's really kept these commandments. He said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So, so even in this guy's best efforts, even if he had kept all the commands... We don't believe that he did, but even if he had, he still can't follow through with all of the commands here as he walks away sad because of his clinging to the things of this world. There's no examples to follow. The best examples fall far short of perfection. The implication here is that man fails to grasp that a verdict of goodness is not reached by comparing oneself to others. And this is what we battle every time we try to share our faith and try to share the gospel with someone is that we, we, we get resistance from somebody because they don't believe they need it. Because when they examine their life, they compare it to everyone else and they figure, I've got to get in. I'm better than most people that I encounter. And, and, and what we see here is that what Scripture is saying is that man has failed to grasp that goodness is not achieved by comparing yourself to others. It's a, it's a, it's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of original sin. All humanity is affected at the root by sin. We are now spiritually dead, unable to please God. We're insensitive to his word, the Bible says. Ultimately, we are hardwired to rebel against God. You can go further with that and say we're hardwired to rebel against authority in general. Right? Like that, that's something that, we, that always rubs us wrong, submitting to authority. That's something that all of us have to fight to do righteously. We don't like to submit ourselves to somebody else's commands. So we're hardwired to rebel against all authority. And unless our nature changes, we cannot stop our evil inclinations. This is so important because it gives context to John chapter 3, right? Like the most elementary chapter that we would go to if we wanted to share the gospel with somebody. John three sixteen. But this doctrine of original sin gives context to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What Jesus is saying, 
what he's communicating flows from an understanding of Genesis 3. He says, you're wrecked. You are, you are, you are broken. You were born with a sin nature. And he says, your only hope of getting into heaven, your only hope of enjoying God forever is to be born again. You have to be born again. We understand that to be born again spiritually, that we need a new nature, a nature that's promised to us in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The picture is given to us in Ezekiel 36. The idea of a new heart that's placed into the lives of, of God's people. A heart that now draws us to the very things that we hated in our sin. The things that we hated about God, the things that we wanted to resist about Christ. When, when God comes in and, and radically changes our hearts and he regenerates us and begins that process of salvation, we're now drawn to the gospel, whereas we resisted the gospel previously. We were insensitive to it. Original sin we find here in Genesis chapter 3, which leads us into in seeing our failure to keep the covenant of works that gives us the covenant of grace that God communicates in Genesis 3.15. We called this last week the proto-evangelium, the, the first mention of the gospel in Scripture Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise of redemption and eternal life is given here to those who believe in the coming Redeemer. The possibility of escaping spiritual and eternal death. So, so when God said, if you eat of the tree, you're going to die, there was really three different types of deaths being communicated there. There was spiritual death that we experienced. There was physical death that most of us will experience unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime. And then scripture also communicates a third eternal death, a death that lasts forever, an eternal separation from God. And God is communicating how we can be freed from that death. In Ephesians, back in Ephesians 2. Verse 11 Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What we find here in, in, in God's communication, he says, I'm sending someone who's going to fix all this. And Paul expounds upon that promise in Romans 3. The idea of a better Adam, a second Adam that we sang about this morning. Romans 3 verse 20. So we left off in Romans 3 with everyone's bad. No one gets in because of their good works. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Christ is the better Adam by fulfilling the law for us. So, so Jesus comes and keeps the covenant of works. He keeps God's law. Romans 8, 3 through 4 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Okay, so we can't keep the law because our flesh is weak. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Christ keeps the law for us. And he reverses the curse. He reverses the curse. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Some other passage you could jot down. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. All of these demonstrate that Christ comes to, to be what we can't be. Christ comes as the better Adam, and he demonstrates, get this, he demonstrates aggressive, obedient behavior. Jesus demonstrates aggressive, obedient behavior rather than passive submission to the things of this world. That's what we see in Adam, the first Adam. He's passive, and he submits to creation, right? He's supposed to He's supposed to rule over creation. He's supposed to subdue creation. That's what God created Adam to do. And yet, yet when, when Satan comes into the garden, he, he submits to this creation. He says, yeah, we'll follow you. We'll do what you say. But what we see in Christ is we see an aggressive, obedient behavior. That Christ labors and he's intense in his desire to follow after his father. That the temptation is real, right? The Bible says that Jesus is tempted in everything that we're tempted in without sin. It's not temptation if there wasn't really um, a, 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 a possibility there. But we know that because Christ is God, he could never submit to sin. And yet we're told that the temptation was very real for Jesus. And he's aggressive in his obedience. Rather than passively sitting back and letting sin come to him and giving into it, He's aggressive in his obedience, and he wins righteousness for us. And now, through the covenant of grace, those in Christ share in the covenant blessings, while those that remain in Adam through disobedience continue in Adam's covenant cursings. This is original sin. Adam and Eve break everything, and we're the recipients of that brokenness. We inherit a broken nature, a nature that resists God, that is insensitive to his word. And it's only by God's grace that he comes in and changes our hearts so that we can be saved. Okay? That moves us to number two, present sin. Okay? So we're talking about lasting results of Adam's sin. Original sin corrupts all of us. But then number two, present sin. There's the real presence of sin today. Even as believers, we continue to battle against sin. We continue to labor in our sanctification. We have to work out our sanctification, work out our salvation because of sin. And because sin is still present, it creates some needs for us, some needs that flow out of Genesis chapter three. First in your notes, the need to wear clothing. 
the need to wear clothing. Now, we talked last week, I had to break up into groups, you read through Genesis 3, what are some things that stand out to you that maybe didn't stand out to you before? In, in my study, I did not pick up on and realize until now how much clothing is really emphasized in chapter 2 and 3. That it's there at the end of chapter 2, right? There's no clothing and everything's okay. Then halfway through chapter 3, there's no clothing and it's not okay, Right, So Adam and Eve realized there should be some clothing here. And then they desire to clothe themselves. And then after everything plays out, at the very end, God says, you were right, clothing is needed now because of your sin. And that continues. And so we see a theology of clothing that really flows out of Genesis 3. And this has big implications for us practically today. The need to wear clothing, a need based on sin. Okay? Some things about clothing that are worth noting. Clothing is a testimony to the glory that we have lost. That's what happens when Adam and Eve sin. They're, they're without clothing. They sin. They lose some of that glory, some of that image. They, they forfeit their innocence. And now they need clothing. And what we find here in Genesis 3 is that clothing is designed... To minimize attention placed on the body. Clothing is designed to minimize attention placed on the body. That's what happens here, right? Adam and Eve want to minimize the attention placed on their body. They want to cover themselves. Now, their clothing is not sustainable. And so God gives them better clothing. And you can see the the spiritual connotations there that in God's presence, we try to clothe ourselves with our good works and that doesn't sustain, but we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But the idea here is a narrative picture that, that clothing is needed, real clothing that minimizes attention to the body. And this has big implications for what we see about clothing moving into the New Testament, right? A lack of clothing and an overemphasis of clothing both draw unhealthy attention to our bodies. And we see both being condemned in Scripture. The idea of a lack of clothing, immodesty, nudity, these things are not okay. They're not okay. They're becoming more and more okay in our culture, right? As our culture continues to shift and move away from Christian principles, this is becoming more of the norm, right? You have to keep your, your, your remote handy when you're watching television because you never know when you're going to have to flip it. Because of a lack of clothing, you have to be guarded and protected using the Internet because of a lack of clothing. We have to be careful even with the clothing that we're using because of the immodesty that can be there and present. But we also have to be careful that we don't overemphasize clothing, that it now becomes a source of security. Right. Scripture talks about not using clothing in that manner, not using it as a point of of social emphasis when we're in groups. That we don't use our clothing to draw attention to our bodies. That's a hard line to draw. Because we're in a culture, especially as singles, where we feel like that is necessary. That we have to present ourselves physically attractive in order to produce a spouse. And what we see here, and man, this is so important for moms and dads that are teaching their children, specifically girls, about the area of clothing. That you trace it back to Genesis chapter 3 and why we clothe ourselves the way that we do. Remember we said, don't just push commands and laws upon your children without communicating the goodness behind it, right? Eve seems to have forgotten the goodness, 
and just wants to highlight, God says we can't do things. That's not fair. She, she missed the goodness behind the command. Don't just tell your children what they can and can't wear without tracing it back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is our theology of clothing and why we wear it and why it's not okay to, to, to minimize it and to remove it and to be immodest with it. And it's also why we don't overemphasize it. We don't draw in healthy attention to our bodies. Secondly, there's the need to fight sin. All right, what, what, we, sh- what we should be overwhelmed with this morning is that sin continues until Jesus comes back one day. And that's true for believers and unbelievers. And so as believers this morning, as we leave the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, it should resonate with us that we have to fight sin. We said last week, ultimately, sin is a failure to rely and trust in God's word. So the way to fight sin is to flee to God's word. We trust in God's goodness. The statement we used last week, a knowledge of God's word and an unwavering trust in God's goodness are essential to finding victory over sin. That we run to God's word and we see the goodness of what he tells us to do in his word and it gives us the motivation to be victorious over sin. There's a need to fight sin. Which leads to our third point, there's a need to seek accountability. This isn't just a personal fight. God's never called us to follow Jesus as individuals. He's called us to do it corporately. He's called us to do that together. That's why we gather as a church family. Because we need the encouragement to see that other people are trying to live the way that we want to live, the way that God's word tells us to live. We need accountability. Why? Because we're going to find in Genesis 4-7 that sin is crouching at our door ready to devour us. God tells Cain that. That one of the consequences of the curse is that sin is crouching at our door ready to devour us. Hebrews 12-1-4 says that sin wants to cling to us. Wants to hold us back in our perseverance. Wants to hold us back in our pursuit of Christ and holiness. And then what we find from Scripture is that the fight against sin is best done through a team effort. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, team effort. 2 Timothy 2, 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. So so Paul tells Timothy, flee these things, pursue these things, and do it with other people that are also fleeing and pursuing those things. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Again, this team effort in following Jesus and fighting sin. Hebrews 3. 12 through 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, admitting that we need others to protect us from sin. Same thing in Hebrews 10, verse 23 through 25, the idea of regularly meeting together for the sake of encouragement. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day 
drawing near. Now, we have accountability groups here at our church, and it's been a growing process and a learning process for us because there's a lot of challenges when it comes to accountability. But the purpose of our accountability groups is to attack the why as much as the what in our fight against sin. So it's not just what have you been doing, but why have you been doing these things? Same thing that's going on in Genesis 3. It wasn't just the what, she ate of the tree, but why did she? Because she believed God wasn't being good to her. She believed that God was withholding goodness from her. Ultimately, that's where the, where the, the decision was lost. She made a decision that God wasn't good. The effects of that were going to naturally play out. She made a sinful decision when she said God's not good. When we meet for accountability here at our church, when we meet in our accountability groups, it's not just about confessing what we've done. It's working together to figure out why have we done those things so that we can squash it there, the lies that we're believing. And when those lies are transformed into truth, it will naturally lead to the right behavior that's honoring to God. Our, our, our goal here at Sovereign Hope is to live in the light faithfully by exposing every attempt of our flesh to harbor sin and darkness. If left to ourselves, we will hide our sin. Accountability is, is an effort by us to bring our sin to light, to confess it the way the Scripture tells us to confess our sins to one another. Just as a reminder, and this is a benefit of membership here at Sovereign Hope, so we put people into accountability groups as they join our church. It's a benefit of membership because essentially when you join our church, you're saying, I want this church to help me and my family fight sin. Okay, so, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a joint effort between our church and you to fight sin. As, as accountability groups, we, we desire to meet one time a month as a group. And then we encourage you guys to have outside meetings, emails, phone calls, text messages that encourage each other outside of those group meetings. What do you do in an accountability group? I get asked this a lot of times from people outside of our church. We've asked our people in our church to confess sin, to encourage each other, and to pray for each other during that time together. To bring your sin to light, to talk about it, to encourage one another in the midst of it, and to pray for each other over it. This guards against legalism. This guards against a mindset of being able to be saved and to do whatever we want to. This guards against discouragement and doubt and guilt, right? Those are, those are byproducts of wallowing in sin, right? We, we get discouraged or, or we, get, we feel guilty because of legalism. Accountability is where we come and get a right perspective about our sin from others that want to speak gospel to us, that want to preach the word to us. The focus is on both behavior and belief. What truths are you exchanging for a lie? The idea here is we need help from our friends to bind ourselves. To learn to play the gospel promises in such a way that it lures us away from the things of this world. Now, many of you have experienced dissatisfaction with your accountability groups. And I want us to make sure that we're all on the same page and have the right perspective. All right, so we tell people, come to your accountability group, okay? And a lot of us, and I'm guilty of this too, a lot of us treat it in this way. We come to our accountability group, okay? We say, sin's real in my life. I need help fighting my sin. We confess that we're struggling with sin. And then we leave our accountability group, okay? And we sit back and we say, okay, what's my accountability group going to do for me? 
Are they going to call me? Are they going to text me? Are they going to seek me out? And we, and we sit back and we say, okay, I did my part. I told people I'm struggling. Now what are they going to do for me? What are they going to do to help me? Okay, and I want to tweak our perspective this morning because I think it's important if we're, if we're going to really see success in our accountability groups long term. In James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think it's important for us to understand our accountability groups from what I'm referring to as the doctor perspective. I want you to think about those of you that, that visit doctors. I, I try as best I can to resist going to the doctor. That's why I've been sick for three weeks because I, I haven't been to the doctor. Some of you are more familiar with the process of part of the reason I don't go to the doctor is because I don't really know how to go to the doctor and check in with my insurance card. It, it just gets overwhelming to even know if they're in my network, not in my network. So I just, I just bear the consequence of being sick. Some of you are more comfortable and more familiar with the process. The doctor perspective, you... I don't think anybody in here expects the doctor to go through their role of patience and call to see if they're sick, right? We don't expect a call from our doctor, hey, just checking in, it's flu season, just wanted to see if you're sick, do you need to come in and get treated? We don't expect that, right? None of us expects that. We don't expect our doctor to seek us out and call us to see if we're sick. But you know what we do expect? We expect that if we call our doctor and say, I'm sick, we expect there to be availability. We expect treatment. We expect the doctor to be there to help us. Now, I want to give you a timeline of how sin plays out in our life. And I want to tell you why this doctor perspective, I think, is so necessary if we're really going to see victory over sin. Um. There's four, four kind of things that would fall on this timeline of, of us wrestling with sin, okay? There's the, the time of pre-sin where we're not being tempted, we're not involved in sin, everything's fine. There's the temptation to sin where our flesh starts working itself out with temptation and there's a, there's a decision-making process that's having to be done. Am I going to sin or am I not going to sin? Then there's the actual act of sin. Some sins, it's real quick. Other sins... It's longer. It takes longer for it to actually be carried out, right? Then there's the time of post-sin where we've sinned, we've committed the, the, the wrong, we're, we're feeling guilty about it, we're, we're dealing with the after effects, right? And let me tell you how this works from a expecting someone to seek you out so you find victory over sin. Because I've played this game and I'm tired of playing this game, right? So I text people and say, hey, how you doing? And I text them during that pre-sin time. Right? Oh, everything's fine. Having a good week. No problems. I'm thinking, wow, great. That's awesome. Like, this person is doing well. I've texted people during the act of sin. You know what kind of response you get? Crickets. Right? 
I'm not texting you back because I'm sinning right now, right? Like, I don't want to interact with you. I've already made the decision. So I'm offering no help there. Then you text during the post-sin time, and all you get is the guilt response, right? Like, yep, you weren't there when I needed you. I've fallen into sin. We need to fix this. We need to talk about this. You know what I've never done? Never have I texted somebody out of the blue in the midst of temptation to sin. It's just never happened. I've never texted or called somebody and them said, I am so relieved that you texted and called me right now because I'm wrestling with whether to sin or not. And this is huge because I need accountability right now. I've never had it happen. I've texted people plenty of times when there's no problems. Texted people plenty of times when I get no response. And then I've texted people plenty of times where I'm too late, where it's already happened and it's post-sin time. And, and this, this is not working This is not working because really, you need help right here. If you really want victory over sin, this is when you need help. And you know who knows when you're in this time? You and you alone. This is when you should be calling the doctor. This is when you should be calling and saying, hey, there's a spiritual pulse right now. There's spiritual life in me. I'm still wrestling with sin, maybe wrestling with it all the time. But I'm demonstrating spiritual life because I really don't want to be in sin. And I am calling you because I need help. To, to, to the best of my knowledge, I have, I have never turned somebody down that called and needed help in that time. When I, when I, when I pick up on somebody needing me, and again, that's not to say that it's never happened, but when I pick up on somebody needing me, It is not uncommon for me to drop everything and go to that person, right? And this is not to, this is not to draw attention to me in any way, try to be prideful about this. What I want you to know is that I'm serious about this. That if somebody calls me and says, I need help, I will literally drop whatever I'm doing to go help somebody, right? As recently as, as not too long ago, I'm, I'm eating at my birthday dinner with my family and someone says, Hey, I need to talk to you. And I go to my wife and I say, we got, we got to leave early. We got to leave early because I need to go talk with someone from our church about something. On my, on my birthday night. Like, that's how serious I am. I don't turn people down when they call and text and say, I need help. And neither should you in your accountability group. But I think it's unhealthy and it's a false expectation to sit here and say, well, I told people I'm struggling. Where are they? I've told people I need help. Where are they? This time right here. This time right here should give context to when you call the doctor. This right here, so let's just, let's just use hypotheticals. Let's say that in my accountability group I share some type of sin that, or some type of temptation that I get faced with. And I kind of pour it out, give all the details. Okay, here's why it's a temptation. Here's when it's a big time temptation. Here are the things that I struggle with. Here are the lies that I try to believe sometimes in this. So now my people have context in my accountability group. And then I'm faced with the sin. And because I really don't want to commit sin, I'm able to call people from my accountability group and say, hey, I need help. Remember that thing that we talked about? That, that's the context. So I don't need to explain myself. I need help right now immediately. And you need to know how to help me because I've already explained to you the situation. Does that make sense? That, that's really what I think has got to happen for our accountability groups to be successful. Because if you're like me, and like I said, I've been this guy. I've been this guy where I've shared stuff with my accountability group, poured myself out to them, and then never heard a word from my accountability group again about it. 
And I've been tempted to say, my accountability group stinks. Like, I told them this is a big struggle for me, and I haven't heard from them about it. But what I found is that I've never followed up with them outside of that meeting and said, hey, remember when I talked to you about this being a struggle? It's a struggle right now. I need your help. And so I would expect that my accountability group's thinking, well, he hasn't called the doctor. I guess he's fine. In the same way that your doctor would think, haven't seen, yeah, it's flu season, but I haven't seen him. They must be okay because they haven't called for help. James says, if you're sick, you call for the elders. You call for them so they know that they're needed so they can come provide the help that you need. I need this perspective to shift in our accountability groups. I need it to shift quickly because I believe that we have people in our church that want to help. I believe we have people in our church that are capable of helping beyond just the elders helping. But I think it necessitates people knowing that help is needed. Because we're busy people, right? Especially those of us who are married. Right? I want the same expectations placed on me to be the same expectations placed on the men of our church. If a man works from 8 in the morning until 6 at night, gets off work, comes home, I expect him to be spending time with his family. Unless he is tipped off by somebody in his accountability group that they need him that night. Because he has responsibilities at home to shepherd his family. This is such an important perspective shift that I think hasn't been communicated like it should have been. It's been the perspective that I've been trying to, to, to work under, but hasn't been communicated to everybody else. And I think we have to be on the same page. That our accountability groups are meant to be a context-setting situation where we tell people where we struggle, how we struggle, why we struggle, so that they can be called upon during this time. During this time. Because right here... I'm good, I'm strong, I'm faithful, don't need help right now. I need help right now, but I've already given in to it. So your texts and calls aren't helping here. And after here, yeah, there's help, there's encouragement here. But really, it's got to start here if we're ever going to see sin stop. Otherwise, we're just constantly counseling post-sin, post-sin, post-sin. It's got to get here where we develop discipline and we really communicate that we want out of our sin by calling before we're in it. Showing a spiritual pulse that says, I don't want to walk in this anymore. Okay? Um, last thing you notice here, the need to find hope in future grace. The need to find hope in future grace. The gospel begins the restoration of the curse. Okay? So we, we wear clothing. We fight sin. We seek accountability. We have to look towards the future and find hope in future grace that's coming. Our salvation, something has been started in us, and it gives us a taste of what's to come, right? There's restoration that's starting to happen. There's a beginning of restoration in our relationships, right? The curse in Genesis 3 is that husbands and wives are going to be in conflict and tension with each other. But when you have a saved husband and a saved wife, you see a husband who's supposed to love his wife like Christ loves the church and a wife who's supposed to submit herself to her husband like the church submits to Christ. That's a restoration of that relationship because of Christ and the Holy Spirit working. There's restoration in our interaction with people to people. Because of the gospel, we start to put the needs of others above our own needs, right? Like that's our salvation working itself out. There should be a decrease in worry about food and shelter. This was probably a huge concern for Adam and Eve as they left the garden. We've got to go make shelter. We've got to generate food. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and says, don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothing. Don't worry about where you're going to sleep. Those things are provided to you by your father. There's a removal of fear concerning death. The Bible says in 
Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14 and 15. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, talking about Jesus, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus is removing that fear of death for us because we have hope of resurrection. We also have the promise of good intent. Romans eight twenty eight says that God is working good for us. Now, this doesn't exempt us from bad things. But it assures us that we aren't conquered by evil and sin, that God is working good in the midst of cancer, in the midst of death, in the midst of suffering, that God is working good for his children. And then lastly, real quick, the eradication of sin. So we have the original sin concept that we see in Genesis 3. We have present sin and and the need to react to that and to take measures to fight it. And then thirdly, the eradication of sin. What we find in Scripture is that the tree of life remains a future reality. We see the the, the tree of life pop up in the New Testament a couple of times, but in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Pops up in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The beauty here is that when we see Adam and Eve escorted out of the garden in Genesis 3, this isn't the last time we see the tree of life. They're prohibited from eating of it now. But in the future, we are going to be welcomed and invited to eat of that tree because righteousness will have been already obtained for us by Christ. And it's a permanent condition that we want. We eat of the tree of life because we remain in that righteous state forever. It's an invitation that's presented in Revelation that we look forward to. We also know that the victory over sin and death through the resurrection is coming. 1 Corinthians 15, we won't take time to read these passages. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. Romans 8, 23. 2 Peter 3, 13. The hope and the assurance that sin and death are going to be done away with. And then we look forward to Christ's return. 1 John 2.28. This is in stark contrast to Adam and Eve's reaction, right? So Adam and Eve sin. God shows up walking in the garden. They run. They hide. They're in fear. But 1 John 2.28 says that if we're believers, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it says in 28, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There's a, I watched a video a long time ago. It's like an animated video of the return of Jesus. And you have the skies opening and, and Jesus is showing up. And, and, and in the video, you've got all these people that are running down the street in fear. 
Because they recognize, and, and, and as Scripture says, they're going to call out for help. They're going to call out for the rocks to cover them. They're in shame. They're in anguish. And in the video, you've got all these people running away from Jesus, and, and you have this little girl that's running towards him, right? Like, like there's no shame. There's, there's no fear. It's Jesus has come back. And that's the picture that we have. There will be many that when Jesus comes back will hide just like Adam and Eve in fear and in shame. We heard you coming and we were fearful because we're naked. Not physically naked, but naked from good works. We have nothing to offer you. We have nothing to atone for our behavior. But First John says, if you're a child of God now, you abide in him so that when he returns, you have confidence and you don't shrink back. The implications here, it helps us understand the origin and foundation of these doctrines, this, this Genesis 3 passage. Number one, original sin in our fallen world. Original sin in our fallen world. Number two, the need for Christ and the destiny of evil. Number one, original sin and fallen world. Number two, need for Christ and destiny of evil. And number three, our daily fight against sin and the hope we possess as believers. Our daily fight against sin and the hope we possess as believers. I want to encourage you guys today as we leave that you, you embrace the responsibilities and, the, and the, the things that we've talked about today, these lasting effects, that you embrace the responsibility to work against these things. The reality is that when we step out this door, sin is still very real and present. And it will always be a problem because of original sin, because of how we were born until Jesus comes back and eradicates sin. But as we leave today, the reality is that sin is very present and that it's crouching at our door as we leave. And it necessitates us fighting sin this week and being in God's word and seeking accountability. And being available to help others that need accountability, right? Being prepared to receive phone calls when someone needs help. And also being faithful to not be the guy who sits back and waits for help to come when nobody really knows you need help right now. It does no good to tell me that you need help because you struggle with sin if I don't know exactly when to help you. Otherwise, I'm just shooting from the hip, hoping to catch you at the right time when you really need a conversation to happen. We show spiritual life by calling out for help at this point when we're being tempted we call the doctor and we say, this is when I need you, right now. And as a church family, it's our, it's our responsibility to be available to provide that help. I want to encourage you to have that perspective as we leave today. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful and thankful that you have allowed us insight into how this world functions by allowing us to see the origins of, of sin and evil but also the origins of redemption here in Genesis 3. And God, while we recognize this morning that we are born into sin, that we are born without the capacity to be good, that you are in the business of rescuing us. And Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who has been sent to convict the world of sin. And God, I personally thank you this morning that the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin at the age of five. And that you put a new heart in me and drew me to the things that I hated previously. You caused me to submit to authority when I wanted no part of authority. That even as a selfish child, you enlightened me to understand the gospel and my need for a savior. That in my attempt to be good, I still fell far short of perfection. 
And God, I thank you that in the reality of sin continuing until Jesus comes back, that you have placed me in a church with godly men who love me and desire to serve me and help me. But Father, I pray that I would fight my prideful tendency to not inform them of how they can help me in the immediate time frame. God, help me to demonstrate spiritual life and desire to fight sin by crying out for help when I need it. And God, I pray that our church would respond and be responsible and be faithful to bear each other's burdens as we're made aware of when we can do that. And God, we do look forward to the day that Christ returns and and removes sin and death completely. We look forward to the day that we eat of the tree of life and begin that process of eternity where we are righteous, glorified bodies without the ability to sin. We look forward to that day. We long for that day. We pray that Jesus would come quickly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.